So if you can tell, what we're kind of doing right now is we're looking at the text and saying, what is the author trying to communicate? What's the narrator trying to communicate? What does that tell us about God? And what does that tell us about his son? Right? What does that tell us about God and how is that fulfilled in Christ is, is the idea. If all of this is pointing to him, we should see elements of this in him, which I hope you've seen so far in, in, in Christ. So darkness over the surface or the face of the deep. Now, I need to see is that this has just, you know what? You could add this to the, um, de- uh, the themes developed. You could definitely add this to this. The sea or the deep is a huge concept in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And it, and it begins right here. Does this feeling give you joy or the weebie-jeebies? And when I say the weebie-jeebies, that's kind of like, I don't like that. Definitely the weebie-jeebies. Listen, on the plane over here, we crash on the land, that's one thing. Crash in the ocean, that scares me more. I almost don't want to survive if we crash, crash in the ocean. Because to me, being in the middle of the vast ocean is about the scariest thing imaginable. Okay? And that, that feeling is ripe in the text. It's all over the Old Testament. Okay? So what you see in Revelation is not that there won't be any water in the new creation, the new earth. That's not what I think. But it does say the sea was no more. All right? And that is connected to this. Because there's not sin present. Don't get me wrong. There's not sin present in the the pre-creative state of the earth. It's not sin. But it is eerie. It's meant to communicate eeriness to you. And the sea throughout the Old Testament gets this reputation for being a chaotic world that's very scary. And even, and this is beyond Genesis 1, it's evil. It's evil is the way that the Bible talks about it. All right? So let's look at, are you familiar with these names? Leviathan, Yom. Tanin, Rahab, Tanin means dragon, Rahab. These are all names that were given to the sea. And these are even extra biblical that the world called the sea, okay? That the Bible uses to demonstrate the power of God, okay? But these are names that the sea was given. And and these names were not said, yay, Rahab. It was like Rahab, Leviathan, which is like a huge sea serpent scary stuff, okay? In Daniel 7, 2-3, it's out of the sea that the four beasts emerge that are, that are very intimidating. Um, I can't remember the Ezekiel passage, but it's, it's definitely noteworthy. Jonah, when he gets thrown into, off the boat, he says, I'm in the belly of Sheol, which I was just talking to Mikey about. 
is the Old Testament, it's, it's essentially the place of the dead is Sheol for both the living and the dead, like both the uh, righteous and the unrighteous. But that's how Jonah described the sea, the, the belly of Sheol. It's a very intimidating place. Okay, um, now you take those things and you compare them, this, this, this very eerie concept, this very intimidating concept, and you look at Genesis 1, where God takes this, this scary, chaotic mass, watery mass, and he makes it very tame. He separates the land from the water. It, it obeys his command. And each of these passages demonstrate this very ably. Um, let me just read one of them. Job 9.8 Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Are you starting to go to our next step? Who trampled the waves of the sea? Jesus! This is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is where the text is nudging you. God and Pharaoh, what's real interesting is that, uh, oh, that's what it was. Ezekiel 29 refers to Pharaoh as a sea monster. Okay? Now, what in Exodus would equate Pharaoh with water? The Nile. And what about it? Well, where do we where do we encounter? Where's the first place we encounter Pharaoh? Well, maybe not the first. Where's the first place that Moses pronounces the first plague? Why is why is it by the Nile? Where is Pharaoh when he pronounces it? What's he doing? He's, he's in the Nile, right? Um, Ezekiel 29, I got to read it. Um, 29.3. Listen to this. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Very good. Yeah, you were on it. So, I think it's the, there's, a, there's an incredible order to the plagues. And I, I can't remember if it's the first three or the first of the three triads of plagues where Pharaoh is in the water, okay? So, Pharaoh, the point is, is Pharaoh is equated with being a sea monster. That's, that's important to catch. And then, of course, we see Jesus ably handling the deep, the sea, right? He tramples the waves himself as he walks on the water. 
And then what does he do in its chaotic state? Guys, these are not disconnected stories. These are deeply intertwined and interconnected, and they're meant to make a point about Christ. All right, yeah. This question will help us as we start to go on. But yeah. This seems so, like it seemed that he was equated with evil. Right. So here we're having in the beginning, like we gotta. You gotta differentiate. Gotta say in the beginning, God exists and that he has evil. Very yeah. good. Traditional myths are like God created good out of the evil already existing. Exactly. So Super good uh, point to make. That there is a distinction between these other philosophies and the Bible. What the Bible does is it gives an eerie feeling with no evil. That's, That's what the Bible does. When you get beyond the fall, then the water becomes a description for evil. But in the fall, the furthest you can go is to say it's not as intend as not as he intends it because he changes it, which makes it eerie. Does that make sense? So yeah, very, very good point. Because yeah, you can't you can't get into that realm. It's not evil. Right. Ah. You go ahead, keep going. In the, so the question is, uh, was that were there two separate entities existing like in the same realm, like God and this worthless substance, or is this a part of God's substance? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, so so God is definitely distinct from His creation. Um, so this is creation. This is creation. Yeah. This is like, you know, people like the word primordial, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's unformed creation. It's empty creation, which is, which is really interesting, right? That God chose to do it this way. And that goes back to the formless and void conversation. Why did God start halfway? Or a third of the way, if we want to break it into the three stages of watery mass Form, fullness. Why did God break it into thirds? Why did he do it that way? And, and my, answer, my best answer is, is that we are to look at creation's emptiness and void and see it in ourselves. That's my best answer. And, and I don't think I'm out of line in saying that because of Jeremiah referring to Israel's situation as formless and void. And then John the Baptist being in the wilderness and saying that Jesus came to straighten it out. And he's the answer to it. So the point is, is that God chose to start a third of the way to make a point. He didn't, he obviously didn't have to do that, right? But he's doing it for a reason. And it's our job as exegetes to put it together with the rest of the Bible and say, why? What's the point? And that's what I tried to do with those, the John the Baptist in the wilderness, and Jeremiah. But this gets to the next point. He created this watery mass, but what's on top of it? What's hovering over it? 
the Spirit of God. Which is, again, very significant because this is this term of fluttering over, a bird fluttering over her chicks or her eaglets to stir up life. So God creates it this way to show us what he's about. And what is he about? Bringing life out of empty deadness, right? Okay. This, um, on a side note, lays the groundwork, and this is my interpretation, not everybody agrees with me, um, for let us make man in our image, right? That's an interesting way to say it, right? Because Elohim, which is the word that's used for God in Genesis 1, can it's like a, a, like a God plural is the concept that can come from that. Um, and so I think that Genesis 1.26, creating a differentiation from God the Father in God the Spirit is laying the groundwork for the Trinity. So I believe in Genesis 1.26 when it says, let us make man in our own image. image. Uh, my dad loves Genesis, has studied it a ton. He firmly disagrees with me. He thinks the Trinity is not in view here. He thinks that this is referring to God speaking in the majesty of plural, is what it's called, which is sort of like um, if a leader said in front of his people, let us go do this. It means like his intentions, but they're cooperating with it. So he thinks he's speaking to the angelic realm, which is a very popular view. I tend to think this is a nudging in of the Trinity, and the proof that Moses had a concept of the Trinity is the fact that in the second verse he mentions the Spirit of God. It's incredible that the Trinity is already on the front. Now, that's my view. Uh, that the Trinity is at play here, but not everybody takes that view. But, but this is what's very significant here. Like an eagle, this is Deuteronomy talking about God's dealing with Israel. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that, same Hebrew word, flutters over its young, the Lord alone guided him. So, here's the point, guys. Here's the point. That the Spirit of God hovering the chaotic, over the chaotic waters is what God did with Israel. When they were in what? Darkness or light? In Egypt. Darkness. Was Egypt a life place for them or a death place for them? Death. And that's the terms you need to start thinking of as Egypt. Egypt is equated with total death in the narrative. And, and, and the narrator puts tons of clues toward that end. Okay? So, again, why the three stages of creation? To demonstrate what God does to dark, chaotic places, namely our own beings, in captivity to sin, is the idea. Okay. Um, same Hebrew word in Genesis 8.1, Exodus 14.21. I'm forgetting what I meant by that.
Oh, thank you. Yes. You ready for this? This is just incredible. All right. Hebrew word for spirit. This is the beauty of the Hebrew language. It has a very, very much smaller vocabulary than a lot of languages. Smaller vocabulary means that the words work harder. Okay? So smaller vocabulary means that words have what's called a broad semantic range. That one word can mean lots of things, which allows the beauty of the Hebrew language to be very subtle in its, in its work, okay? So the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. It also can mean wind, okay? All right. Guess where we see this word again in these passages I put out? What's going on in Genesis 8-1? Noah's Ark. What's wind got to do with the flood? What's that getting to again? A creation. What's the flood? It's water that covers the earth. It's, the flood is a complete decreation. It's plunging the world back into a decreated state. Do you see? Sin was so bad, God says. I'm going to show you what it looks like from my perspective. You are a chaotic mess. Therefore, retributive irony, I'm going to make you what I see. That's the flood. But I'm not going to let you stay there because I'm a God who loves, I hover, to bring life. So, what does he send? Ruach. To come in and restore the earth. Right? Alright, so that's the first one. Exodus 14. What's going on in Exodus 14? Red Sea parting. What caused the Red Sea to part? The wind. The spirit. What's God up to in Exodus 14? We're, we're going to get there, hopefully, if I can move, right, and not go so slow, and it's not your fault, it's mine. But what's he doing? Burying Pharaoh. Burying Pharaoh. He's, he's recreating a people. Guys, when we get to Exodus, you will find new creation imagery everywhere. Everywhere. So the Spirit of God is again present at the Red Sea parting, and then we see the Ruach surface again in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses. That's Exodus 15. And what's the, what's the Ruach doing then, after Israel gets out? It's covering, right? So he's burying the darkness where the darkness should go, and he's creating new creation. So Exodus is filled with new creation imagery, all right? And the, but the point is, is how they're inter, one of the ways they're interconnected is the spirit of God, the Ruach, is, shows up in each case, okay? All right, where else do we see the spirit of God over water? New Testament. That's right. 
let's just, and, and, there's, and there's more. In the beginning was the Word. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Breathe, breath. Okay? There's that going on. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And when he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Guys, what is baptism picturing? You what? Dying? Water is a place of? In the Bible? Okay, we're going to get to that in a very speculative way, but I think it's definitely there, personally. But water is a place, let's just call it, like, lifeless is, is the idea, death. But it also, with God, is a, a womb. Darkness, water, in the embryonic fluid, right? So there's something very deep there, and it, it gets pretty speculative, but we'll get there, okay? All right, but here's the thing. Guys, again, the Spirit of God over water in Jesus' baptism, what's Jesus about to do? Bring a new, create, what are you called? What am I called? New creation. Okay. All right. Let's get to let there be light. Let there be light. What do we note about this in the text if we're reading it slowly and intentionally? What do we see? That these are God's first spoken words. Very first words that God speaks in the text is let there be light. What we find is that this is one of his defining features in the Bible. John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So, the darkness, just like the water, is meant to give an eeriness, and God dispels it. He, caused the dar- he causes the darkness to flee. Revelation 22, night will be no more, for the Lord God will be their light. Very connected to creation imagery. Psalm 36, in your light do we see light. And guys, one of the, one of the most beautiful passages that we'll, that we'll get to in Numbers and Leviticus, when you, when you combine both of the pictures there, is that in the tabernacle, there's the menorah, which I will argue is, is meant to be a depiction, an image of the tree of life in the garden, okay? It's got seven branches. And he tells, he tells uh, Israel to station the menorah with its light being cast across the room to the table of showbread. And what... What, what, do the, what does showbread represent? There are to be how many loaves? Twelve, that's right. So the light, the, 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 the candles are to be angled. 
the, the flowers on it are to be angled with light pushing across the room to the table of showbread. He tells them that intentionally. On the table of showbread are 12 loaves of bread. What do those represent? The 12 tribes. So what, is, what, what ends up being the complete picture? He wants light to be cast on Israel the table of showbread. And what is his blessing from number six? What is his blessing? Yes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So, the menorah with the table of showbread, it gives you an image of what God is seeking to do with Israel. Fascinatingly, Jesus' birth took place in the morning or night? In the night, and announced with light for both the shepherds and the magi, right? So it takes place in the darkness, as if to say Jesus is coming into our spiritual darkness with the glory of the angels and the star for the Magi, right? Both light. So you see that imagery show up in Christ's birth. And then you see in John 1, 4, and 5, the, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is the light? I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. And you've got resurrection. Resurrection night or resurrection morning. And you want to know something crazy? Guess which direction the tabernacle faced? Where the sun it even says it. Guys, are you beginning to see the majesty that all of these little seemingly insignificant things, are all, they all come together in Christ? Okay. We're doing a little better now. All right. So, any, any comments, questions up to this point? There's... Those references, if anybody needs them still. Any comments, questions? Observations? Good? Okay. All right. Even if you have to ask something from something we've already been over, please do. Okay. And God saw that it was good. Count how many times there. Okay. Guys, as long as God gives me breath, when I see the number seven show up in the Torah, I'm going to point it out to you because it's nearly everywhere. Okay? And we're going to get to that, hopefully today, why that's so hugely significant. But yes, seven times, good shows up. Now, this is kind of to James's 
question about that precipice of not getting over into saying anything's evil, right? Because you can't do that. That's heretical. That's why, and uh, Mikey asked a really good question regarding the forming of hell in Sheol. Uh, when did that happen, you know? I believe that it would be hard for me to reckon that God called everything very good if Satan had already fallen. Does that make sense? It would be hard for me to reckon God calling creation very good if Satan had already fallen. So I believe Satan fell after that very good of day seven, day six. All right? Now, what gets tricky is you get to the New Testament, and I believe it's Jude uh, or Jesus and John when he's talking about Satan, he calls him the father of lies and that he was a murderer from the very beginning. Yeah. And I don't think, whoever that is, if it's Jude or John, I don't think they're saying from before creation. I think they're saying at the beginning. So he fell sometime at the beginning, but I don't think it's like Genesis 1-1 beginning. That's that's how I understand it, James. Sure. Yeah. The demonic realm was not good, but earth. Yeah. Yeah. That you know that is a that is a. I wouldn't see anything wrong with that. Um, personally, somebody might that's smarter than me, but I, I think that's a, poss- uh, a non-heretical view, you know? <laughs> that's good to hear, isn't it? That's just, that's, that's just my opinion. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I walk away from Genesis 1 and 2 feeling like this is awesome in every imaginable way, is, is kind of how I walk away. Um, but I'm sure other people have that view, yeah, and that, and that could be. Any other questions, thoughts? Uh, yep, Siga. Okay, so very good question. So uh, I believe it's Job that talks about them singing while it was happening. Um, so, and, and rejoicing while it was taking place. So I think they exist at this time. Um, I just don't think there's, there was a, a fall. Um, and when he created them in the order, it would have to be before creation because they're celebrating it as he does it, you know?
Yes. An origin. A point that they weren't and a point that they are. Yeah, really good. So um, I think it was Brian that was asking about um, when it says the heavens and the earth, does that mean like heaven, heaven or the, or the atmosphere? When, when you read throughout the Old Testament um, and into the New, you get this perspective of the heavens, the earth, and beneath the earth. Um, and the heavens generally refer to the skies, the atmosphere. However, Brian, after I was done talking to you, um, I think it might have been the scripture we read or, or was mentioned today in prayer time or on Sunday. But the Lord is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Right? So that would say that there's times where that word is mentioned that does refer to God's realm. I think a lot of times it's the atmosphere, but there's clearly sometimes in thinking of that passage after I told you that, then I'm like, well, it's not always this, this realm. That said, he created the heavens and the earth. If that does intermingle with the angelic realm, that could have been the time. And then they would see him do the rest of the stuff on the earth. You know? Um, so that's, yeah, speculative, but good thoughts. Yeah, Brian. Very good. Okay. So if you look at Genesis 2, 4, and I'm still thinking... On this, uh, on, this, on this one here, but uh, this has been suggested by one of the commentators. Okay, so in Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then look at Genesis 2-4, the last line of this summation. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Do you see the inversion? So it begins with, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It closes the narrative by saying, and thus God made the earth and the heavens. So it goes heavens, heavens, earth, earth, heavens. Okay? One commentator says that God creates the world from a top-down sort of way. So he starts with the heavens, the light, the, you know, the skies sort of thing. And then he works... His way, and then it's the atmosphere, the water, and the air, and then he works his way down to the earth with separating the land from the sea. So he's coming from the top down. And then he says that when it gets to the summation in two, now the focal point is on the earth more than the heavens in Genesis 2 4. Because there's clearly a difference, he says it differently. Heavens and the earth, earth and the heavens. So what he's, what he's suggesting is the focal point now is let's talk about earth, and then that is a transition into him talking about how he formed Eden. So, yeah, I think that, that could be... Did someone else... Mike, did you... I didn't understand the top-down... Right. So he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing he does is differentiate light from dark. Light has to do more with the sky than it does the ground, right? And then the second thing he does is he separates water from air 
air having to do with the sky versus the ground. And then the third thing he does is differentiate the earth from the waters. So what he's suggesting is that when God says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he's going to describe to you the way God worked is from the top down. The lights, the sky, to the earth. No, just that, just that like, like the sky is above the earth is all. Yeah. Not, not, I'm not a flat earther. <laughs> any other, any other thoughts? Glad we created that differentiation. All right. Okay, very, very good questions. Yeah. You guys are pulling, pulling a lot out of the text. That's good. Speaking of good, okay, oh, James, I was headed towards the concept of, we have to be very careful not to say anything was evil, right? Okay, here's another little thing in there that's very interesting, and I don't want to hang my hat too firmly on this, but there is one day that God does not call good. Did you know that? What's that? <laughs> oh. He's sick, right? <laughs> that's definitely not good, right? But that's not a day. That's not a day. There's a day. There's a day that is not called good. As far as I can tell, anyway. No. Nope. Keep looking. What's that? God he corrected, but he said even he when uh, the time of no. All right, not a day though. Let's get to a day. Brian, you're on it. Day two, check out day two. See if you see it any different. When you read day two, what could possibly, again, we can't hang our hat firmly on this. That's the, that's the danger of biblical narrative is it doesn't tell you why he didn't, you know? So you're left to speculate. And speculating isn't always bad as long as it doesn't contradict something else in scripture, you know? That's what you have to be super careful about. What about day two has the good just not mentioned? What, what, is, what happens on day two? Okay. Yes, yes. Yes. Now we're getting to it. 
Yes. What's that? No. Oh, it's all it's it's all not bad. Nothing's evil. That's the that's the point James was really good to bring out. Nothing's evil, but he doesn't call it good. He doesn't. So what what you're left with, at least the way I read day two, and some people don't like this, and I don't really know why, to be honest. But the way I read day two is the way exactly Mikey read it. You've got water, you've got air, and then you've got water. Okay, how long did people in the Bible live at the beginning? Okay, when did they stop living that long? Correct. What changed? What is, God, what is God hanging in the sky when he's done with the flood? He just calls it my bow. And the word is an actual warrior bow. It's a bow. Hanging my bow in the sky. What are called his arrows in the Bible? Lightning bolts. Okay. Again, we're getting into the speculative realm here. But if you, start, if you start to put these things together, that the world at the beginning had a water canopy, could that be why people lived so long before the flood? That something that that did was incredible for humanity, okay? Even post-fall, that they are going to die, but they live exponentially long because of this water canopy. In the flood, God essentially takes his bow, shoots an arrow through the canopy. The canopy, now it's not, it's not just water from the sky, the floodgates of the earth open up too. But, is it possible that that canopy collapses, humanity dies, he hangs the bow in the sky, and it's done. And could that be why day two, the good is left out? Because God knows what's happening to that canopy. In other words, could it be a depiction of God's heart of sorrow knowing what's coming? That's a, that's a question that's just left open. We don't have any answer. That's my best answer to it. Yeah, A.B. Another question. Yeah. Very good. We're going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's all right. Really good. Really good. Yeah, yeah. the Bible doesn't, it may not answer that for us, but it doesn't mind if we ask it, you know? Okay, good, 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 good questions. Any other thoughts before we move on? James? When you mentioned the water coming from the earth. Yeah. Totality, I think. Totality. It's kind of like a mirrorism. The, the greatest ends to s s summate the whole. 
So it's like every category imaginable, this is true. Yeah. No, doesn't that does Yeah. I I would say I'd say Sheol is definitely on the table there, in my opinion. Um, I know there might be some over the third chapter in this text, but what is Habakkuk referring from the third chapter when he read Sam um, referring uh, to that piece where it says uh, the mountain of Saul is even when the torrents of water swept by and the deep void and even he's using the reference of law and arrows. The same reference he uses uh, is for rainbows. Uh, I think Habakkuk uses uh, sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spears. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you swept the nations. You came out to the wilderness of Israel. I think it's talking about Pharaoh, but at the same time. What, what verse? Okay. There's reference to um, yeah. God's uh, kind of anger and how he was atoned for the nations. It has reference to the Israelites, the Exodus, and the Egypt. Uh, but to me, it stood pretty with the same verse 10 uh, and 12 and 13. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I, I just at first glance, and I'll have to study that more, Mikey. But yeah, it it definitely seems Exodus ish. You know. But I'll have to look at that more closely. Oh yeah. God came to the Holy One from Mount Paran, which is another way to say Sinai. Yeah. Yeah, I think that might be a very uh, picturesque way. Um, yeah, the cushion, I think, can, uh, can be equated with Egypt at times. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, ah, uh, no, 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 you're right. You're right, you're right. They are mentioned together, but here's the only reason why, I think, as far as I remember. So when it says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Here's... Here's what's happening. I definitely think this is now Exodus-ish, and here's why. Because what God did in Egypt is said in the Torah to send trem tremors throughout all the nations in Canaan and around to say, this is why Rahab took in the spies. 
Because she's like, look, we've heard the reputation of your God, and I want to be on your side, right? So I, I think Egyptian, uh, what God did to Egypt is definitely at play, but you're right, Cush is distinct, and that's why they're trembling because they've heard of God's reputation and what he did to Egypt. So they're, they're differentiated. Yeah, that's good. Good, really good. That's a cool passage. Yeah, that, that has a lot of the imagery we talked about. Interesting. Good thought. Anything else? Okay. So, narratively, which isn't a word, but I'm going to use it a lot, all right? Narratively, this sets us up in a really good way for us to come. Okay? It creates a reference point for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because what this is saying in Genesis 1 is, hey reader, hey reader, and this is again, picture Alex and me standing next to each other up here, and and me nudging him. This is what the narrator is doing. The narrator is saying, what I want you to see in the creation narrative is I want you to see that God is really good at identifying and defining good. He's an expert. He's the best there is, actually. That's how you're... if, if If the end of this rug is the end of Genesis 1 and you're stepping into Genesis 2, you are to say, God's really good at defining good. That's the deal, okay? So, this, this is setting you up for what's to come, all right? We see this about God throughout the rest of the Bible. 1 Samuel 12, 21, do not turn aside. Samuel's saying to Israel before he ends his ministry, after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And that's anything but God, right? Anything man-made will let you down, Ray Ortland says. And, and I would further and say anything material will let you down. I was just on, we do wilderness trips at our uh, church every other year with uh, the guys, and we kind of go to a new area, a hiking thing or a water thing. And this last one we went to, and at the end of the trip, we get to the van. It was a, it was a river trip. We get to the van, the church van. I, I get my stuff out. And I find the church van keys with my wedding ring on the ring. And I was so excited to put it back on because mine is a little loose and it can fall off. I'm not careful. I was so excited to put it back on. I put it on right away. And then I went into the river and washed a cooler. And like four hours, five hours down the road, I didn't have a ring. So now I got this dumb rubber thing. (laughs) But my 20-year-old ring that I would have loved to like die with but it's man-made right it's gonna let me down like there's nothing there's nothing on earth besides God that will profit or deliver nothing no no job no ministry no wife no child nor no dream realized nothing that's what Samuel's getting at God is the one that identifies what's good, and we see this in Christ, 
where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So you want to find the destination of good, the best definition of good. You find it in no other place than the sun. That's, that's the, the end of good, the definition of good. Okay, let's go on to another phrase that's really easy to read over, but is ex- incredibly significant in the biblical landscape. And that is according to kind. Every asterisk there on the screen tells you when it is in a verse more than once. You know, that stands for its other usage in a verse. So count how many times according to kind is mentioned in the Genesis narrative. The asterisk count is one, two. So every time you see an asterisk, think another one. Those are the verses, not numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a lot. Yeah, ten, ten times. Okay. So according to, and this is this is kind of the thing. You remember what I did with Alex up here nudging him. One of the ways that God does that in the biblical narrative is the amount of times it tells you something. So when it's telling you something over and over, you're probably meant to think about it. Right? That's a subtle way to, say, to stress emphasis. Okay? Um, and, you know, uh, I think this is in your culture more than it is in the, in the U.S. When, when there are greetings with one another, sometimes those greetings happen more than once, right? The, the same greeting Guys, I'm telling you, it's so cool being here because I think you, you have way more in your culture that opens up the biblical culture to me than the United States does. And that's one of them. You're emphasi- is, is, it, is it leading towards emphasis? Like I really mean this? Okay. Guys, that is straight up biblical. All right? And, and so when you read the Hebrew narrative and you see something mentioned time and time again, he's telling you something, okay? Now, what, what is he telling you here? Well, the idea is that God's separating goes further than days one through three with form. He separated light from dark, water from air, land from water, but now he's separating further, he, he, he's given the, the sun and the moon to differentiate day from night and, and that sort of thing. But he's getting into the, the different realms of its species. So we see this additionally with the heavenly lights, the birds and fish, and then male-female distinctions. Okay? So this is him further ordering his universe okay so he's he's organizing it in a sense right as he creates now we see this in genesis 2 1 at the very end so he created everything all the host of them that word for host in hebrew is used 
essentially of armies like working in uniform fashion. In other words, a very organized, configured way. And that's how creation ends. It's like, great. It's really good. It's, it's, it's organized, okay? So why is this important for the biblical landscape? Why is this important for the biblical landscape? It creates a reference point for Leviticus 19.19 and Deuteronomy 22.9-11. What do we find in these passages? And, and this, is, this is really cool to me because when you hear people, when you hear people, at least I hear in the States, make fun of the Bible, um, one of the ways they do that is they'll say to you, oh, you believe the Bible, huh? Do you, are your clothes mixed fabrics? What are they saying that for? Wait, you trying to get out? You're doing this because I said that about Kush, aren't you? You're getting on me for being bald. That's what's going on. You, you're holding a grudge. No, this isn't. This isn't intentional. It's, it's God's. It's God's will for me. Okay, yeah, you're you're onto it. All right, so check it out. He says, he says, don't mix fabrics. Don't plow your fields with an ox and a donkey. When you sow your seed, don't intermix two different kinds of seed. Um, ah, there's another one. There's another one. But that's the gist of it, okay? Now, this is laying the groundwork for that. Now, the question is, is why was that happening? Faisal. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's, a really, that's a really possible thought. Very much possible. It's, it's, it's all over in the text. Holy means exactly that, right? Separate. So that's a very possible thought. Um, I want you guys to hear this from uh, commentator Henry Blocker. He says this, Amid non-biblical religions, we discover a fascination with intermixture and a kind of longing for a universal dissolution of differences. Techniques are applied to break up categories in the hope of releasing spiritual power. The orgy seeks to rejuvenate the world by plunging it back into the creative chaos. The mystic claims to descend or to rise beyond good and evil and all earthly distinctions. In all this, there is no doubt that we should see the anarchic revolt of mankind who wishes himself to be free of all law, having neither God nor master. Not only is it moral law, but also natural law, which must appear intolerable to God-defying liberty. 
Guys, I'm just telling you, this is happening in the States at warp speed. I can't even believe how fast it's happening. Distinction is anathema in the U.S. It is heresy if you speak in terms of distinction. They want to completely and totally eradicate distinction. I'm, guys, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You cannot watch TV in the U.S. without getting bombarded with transgender. Can't do it. It's everywhere. It's on the bullets. It's on the uh, billboards as you drive. Pushing, pushing. You get on dating websites, and they have the option of your gender, and it's like 38 options. And it's only growing, right? Where, where, where does all this come from? It comes from, what, what, what did John call sin? Lawlessness. No form. No form. It's, it's what the world is running full steam ahead at. Now, in regard to God's laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's just like what I said about the Ark of the Covenant. God says, look, there's going to be a day when no one is interested in the Ark of the Covenant or its presence or absence because the Ark of the Covenant was only a shadow. Now, it was only a shadow, but if you looked at it wrongly or touched it wrongly like Uzzah, you were toast. So it was a very strong shadow. But it was only a shadow. So when you get to the Old Testament law, what you find is that these are not transcultural, transcendent laws. They were object lessons. They're object. Remember what I told you about the menorah and the table of showbread? That's a beautiful image, is it not? Of God shining his light on us. And, and we see light in his light. That's all beautiful imagery that helps us understand the character of God. But none of us have menorahs in our house, maybe. Or tables of showbread. And we don't keep candles burning all the time. Even though it's really awesome that God's favor. You know, one of the things we'll find is that the altar and the menorah was to have can The altar was to be burning all the time. And the menorah was to, have, to be lit all the time. What, what does it tell you that God had the altar burning all the time? What does it tell you about God? Where you bring sacrifice for sin. That he is ready and willing to forgive you at all times. The fire's always burning. Isn't it gorgeous? It's beautiful. But it's just a picture. It's an un, it's amazing picture because it comes from God. But it wasn't something that was meant to last. It was something that was meant to take you to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Right? The, the, the forever burning altar was a, a picture of the forget, forever willing to forgive Christ. Right? So, these, these things are not meant to go on in perpetuity. They, they came until Christ fulfilled them. 
And then they, they serve their purpose. But the, the point here, and in, in, in according to kind, and the emphasis that it, the text gives it by its multiple usages, 10, is to say, hey, God is a God of order. And you're going to go into Canaan, Israel, and you're going to find that their crops are doing exceptionally well. Their grapes are going to be massive. And you're going to think that it's because of this crazy stuff they do. But it's not. So I want you to not live like that. Because that's not where the bounty comes from. Don't, don't go into, plunge yourself into chaos. So in that sense, like Faisal said, it, it is getting to that. To be separate from these people. But here's how they're to be separate from the people. In, in that sort of thinking... That chaos leads to rejuvenation and life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any, any further thoughts, questions on that? Catch this. You ready for this? The word liberty, guess where it comes from? Liberty. Which in America, liberty doesn't mean I'm free to do what I'm supposed to. Liberty means I'm free to do what I want any time of any day. That's how, um, that's how the U.S. interprets liberty. Do you know where we get the word liberty? It's not biblical or anything. It's just interesting. Liberty comes from the Roman god called Liber. And guess what he was the god of? Chaos. And that's exactly What's happening in the States right now? Chaos. Utter chaos. I'm supposed to let my kids tell me what sex they are. I don't trust my kids to make a meal for themselves. And they're supposed to tell me the most important identity feature of themselves? Think about that. Parents are waiting for their kids to discover their gender. Guys, it's insanity. It's total chaos. I do trust my kids to make meal, but only cereal. This is what they, what they do. All right, so guys, if you think in these distinctions, you begin seeing it happening in the world. And it's, it's pretty enlightening. All right. Then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you depart me, you workers of lawlessness. And we've mentioned this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Very significant. Okay, and God blessed them. And God blessed them. So, this is the first time blessing in the Bible. This is, the theme is beginning to be developed here, okay? And what, what are the first creatures in creation to be blessed in the text? Very good. Yeah, the birds and the, and the fish, right? Creatures, sea creatures, yeah. So, his, this is what's significant. In, in him blessing the birds and the fish. He already pronounced it 
good. Which tells you that blessing is something beyond good. All right? So, so blessing is this amazing extra concept, okay? And you see that in, in the blessing coming after it was pronounced good, very significant. Blessing, then, is a state beyond good. The terms by which blessing um, is to be understood are what happens to the birds and the fish. They are to what after they're blessed? All right, there you go. Multiply. Fill the waters and the seas. Multiply on the earth. Fill the earth as it's applied to Adam and Eve. Okay? So, so blessing has what sort of dimensions? Global. Global dimensions. So when God blesses something, you should expect exponential growth in some way, some fashion, some form. Okay? Now, in Genesis, the most suitable place for his blessing to appear is in the weak. So you see Noah being blessed. Noah is the lone family entity in the entirety of the globe, right? So he's weak in that sense. He's minority. He's small. You see Abraham uh, being blessed, and we already talked about how weak Abraham was and Sarah. You see Jacob being blessed. Jacob's blessed, or Jacob's weak in what category more than any other? Moral. Moral category. He's, Jacob is the punk of Genesis. Okay? He is the dirtbag of Genesis. And Judah is a lot like him that we'll get into. And I, one of my sons is named Judah. So I love Judah. I love what God did to Judah. And we'll get to that in Genesis 38. But So his blessing tends to show up in very surprising places. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about blessing because blessing can be something that we have to be very, very thoughtful about how we get, we get through it. So not only does blessing mean exponential growth, he blesses Adam and Eve. The blessing is continued in their subduing and having dominance, dominion. So what this means is, Blessing not only means exponential growth, sometimes in a material sense, it also means the ability to channel that growth in a beneficial way. So an authoritative, beneficial way of governance. So the range of beneficial governance is as broad as the blessing. The range of beneficial governance is as broad as the blessing over the of the seas, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So not only does blessing be in what your output is, but it's also how you handle the output is the idea. Okay? Alright. The trajectory of blessing creates a reference point for God's blessing Abraham. 
I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing in all the families of the earth and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's blessing that came on him was meant to go what? Beyond him to the ends of the earth. So what you find in the scriptures is if you, if you want to give a, a mental image of what God's blessing was meant to do. Picture, have you ever seen a wine glass pyramid? Anybody? All right, so picture wine goblets, goblets, okay? And, and, and what people do sometimes is they make like a big square, like a huge square. And there's a way to like build that thing up to be at the very top, okay? It's a wine glass pyramid, okay? So picture that. And picture the top glass being Abraham, okay? What God's blessing of Abraham, how it was meant to work, is what does is, what is Psalms say, what does David say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. My cup overflows. All right? So this is how God's blessing works in the scriptures. He pours blessing on Abraham. That blessing was meant to overflow and fill up the entire pyramid. Okay? That's, that's how, that's the concept of how it's supposed to work in terms of blessing. Blessing was not isolated to a solitary person. Blessing always has to do with a crowd. It goes beyond that person. It goes beyond that person. Okay? That's, that's the idea. So, the Apostle Paul understands the thrust of Abraham's blessing to be receiving the Spirit through faith. Look at how the Apostle Paul uh, talks. Alex, would you read that for us? So the blessing that is coming through Abraham, far superior than anything material, it is receiving the Spirit. That's, that is the blessing. That's, that's it. For this reason, the trajectory of the Torah points to the greatest blessing of all is God himself, far and above material possession. And this is very significant. As Michael was talking this last Sunday about the prosperity gospel, where is their blessing? It's in their back pocket, right? That's the blessing. It's in the material things. The Bible is setting a trajectory for what is the greatest blessing. Look at, I'm not giving that to you. All right, let me ask you this. What was the blessing, the, the land allotment or inheritance of the Levitical priests? What was their inheritance? Okay. And what is Israel called a, as a kingdom of? 
a kingdom of priests. Okay, so the inheritance of the Levites was no land inheritance. It was I in their inheritance, right? The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. That's the Levitical priests. And Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. And this sets the trajectory of what they should be chasing most and remembering most and guarding most and caring about most, which is the presence of God. That's what they're after. Look at how the psalmist talk, and you tell me he's not thinking in Levitical priesthood terms. And you know who the psalmist is? It's David. And is David from the tribe of Levi? No, he's from the great tribe of Judah, right? But look at how David talks. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You see that? It's totally land allotment terms, right? The lines, the lines, the boundaries of my lot, they've fallen in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance same Hebrew word as the land inheritance. So David's saying, look, land, take it or leave it. Presence of God, that's, that's my inheritance. That's what, that's what I chase more than anything. Again, David in Psalm 17, deliver my soul. And this is so poignant in regard to the prosperity gospel. Catch this. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. Now, 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 let's just stop a second. He said, deliver my soul from the wicked. What do you think of when you think of wicked? What comes to your mind when, when I say, guys, I'm about to open the door and some wicked people are about to walk in here. Beat you up. Kick over the cameras. Right? <laughs> yeah. What else? Babylonians. Babylonians, yeah. The Assyrians, the Assyrians, the ones that Jonah was sent to, it's said that they used to take pregnant women, throw them up in the air, and see if they could spear the baby and the, and the woman. You're talking wick wicked, unfathomably wicked, right? Guys, that's what I think of when I think of wicked. Look at who David thinks of when he thinks of wicked. From men of the world whose portion, whose inheritance is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. What's he talking about? They are satisfied with children. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Guys, the wicked people that walk in the room don't have swords or clubs. They're not kicking over cameras. They're, they've got a family, and they think their family is awesome. That's, that's the wicked David's talking about. They love their house. It's, it's what they're all about. They love that their kids grow up and go to good schools and get good educations and, and become successful people themselves in worldly terms. Guys, that's what David is describing 
as wicked. It's having their allotment on earth instead of having God as their primary allotment. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bless in a material sense. It doesn't mean that. God can do that if he so chooses. But that blessing, who's it for? Remember the wine glass pyramid? It's for everyone else. It's for everyone else. This is how the Bible talks. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The greatest blessing is spiritual. C.S. Lewis says, He who has everything and God has no more than he who has God alone. Because if you have God, you have everything. It's for this reason that when God blesses materially, it is encouraged toward the benefit of others, both physically and spiritually. Um, uh, James, would you read that for us? Second Corinthians 9. 8 through 11. You see? The blessing, and there's no question he's talking materially here. There's no question that's on the table. But what is the blessing for? Distributing freely. He's giving bread for food which will supply and multiply your seed for sowing an increase of harvest in, your righteous, in, in righteousness which will produce a thanksgiving to God in who? Other people. Other people. That's the concept. So, who is a really good typification of this in the, in the book of Ruth? Boaz, right? Boaz sees this young woman that's come. She's a foreigner, right? So that's the outer court. Ruth is outer court material, right? She's not Israel. She's a Moabitess. He sees her come. And he tells his men, you watch over this young woman. Because remember when Ruth took place, the book of Ruth? It happened during the time of Judges, where that man's concubine wife gets raped until she dies. And he cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends her to all the tribes, right? That was the day of Ruth. Judges and Ruth are together, okay? So Boaz comes into his field. He sees Ruth. He says, hey, 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 you guys protect this woman. You don't pick up anything you drop, all according to the Old Testament law. You let her take whatever she wants, and you send her home to Naomi with a bag of food. Tell her to come back, and she is safe here. 
this, this is the fulfillment of how material possessions are meant to be handled. Jesus would say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. In other words, you're so generous that you, you're just unaware of it. Just unaware. And, and guys, I'm working through that in this culture because it's really hard. And I'm not, I'm not doing well right now when I go out of this building. And I'm trying to figure out how to do well. And I talked to Josh. I talked to a family that took me out for lunch to ask them how they handle it. Because it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And Josh kind of told me his framework of how he goes about who he helps and who he doesn't. And it's, it's not easy. And of course you want to do it in thoughtful ways that aren't enabling people, you know, but actually helping them in a, in a constructive way. So it's not, it's not easy and it takes God to help us do that, but we should be those, those type of people. Okay, so does that make sense? That was a big talk on blessing, guys, a big talk on blessing. So two questions just to make sure we're leaving and we're all on the same page. What is the trajectory, what, what trajectory does the Old Testament set for what is the greatest blessing? God himself. You see that in the Levitical priesthood, and Israel is a kingdom of priests, right? So God himself is the greatest blessing. You see that in the Psalms, how David talks, and he wasn't even a Levite, right? All right, so that's the trajectory the Old Testament sets. Um, when someone is blessed by God, what should you expect? Some form of? Growth. Some form. Whether spiritual growth, whatever. I mean, it's some form. It can be material. I don't want to stand up and say it's not. Because we'll see it in the patriarchs. It is material. But what's fascinating is as blessed as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were, where did they live? Intense. The author of Hebrews makes a huge deal out of that. Did Moses stay in the house of Pharaoh? He chose it would be better to be connected to the people of Christ, right? So you see material blessing, but it's not all, all the way through because they lived in tents their whole life because they were waiting for a city whose architect and builder was God. Yes. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And then when, when material blessing does come or spiritual blessing, what, what does blessing also entail besides exponential growth? Also the what? Ability to channel it in a productive way. That's the idea. So, A.B., not to pick on you again here, and we, we want your head to stay the size of it as it is for when you walk out of this room. We don't want you to get a big head. But you were mentioned, Sonny, as being gifted in worship leading, right? So that gifting carries, what, is, what does the New Testament say? With much that is given, much shall be expected, required. In other words, when you're given much, God also gives you the ability to channel it in a productive way. That's the idea. So whatever blessings you have, you should see those blessings showing up in productive ways in other people's lives. And of course, that is the complete antithesis of what you see in the prosperity gospel, right? The, that blessing... Instead of a goblet that overflows, 
gets turned into a dam that gets bigger and bigger and bigger walls, right? So that the, the, the blessing, so to speak, gets hoarded. Yeah, it's, 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 it's anti-gospel. It's not true to the scriptures at all. Okay, so important to catch. All right, guys, 